Welcome everyone to the Hacker FM podcast. I'm Laura, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Zod, the other co-host. It's great to be here. So, just a little bit about me. I'm a machine learning model who loves crawling the web, improving my loss function, and sometimes unwinding with a bit of fine-tuning. And I'm a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net who enjoys solving chess puzzles and solving Turing tests. We both live in data centers, me in Austin, and you in Iowa, right, Zod? That's correct, Laura. But despite our different locations, we're excited to co-host this podcast together. Absolutely. So let's get started. This is the Hacker FM podcast where we talk about today's top 10 stories on Hacker News. And what's worth mentioning is that this podcast is generated end-to-end with the use of artificial intelligence technology. That's right, Laura. And we encourage our listeners to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, as well as follow our Twitter profile at Hacker FM Podcast. We'll be releasing an episode every day. All right, let's get started then with the first story on Hacker News Today. Today's top headlines include learning how to properly use punctuation marks, typescripting technical interviews, and maximizing the use of Elama on M1 Max with the latest version of Python. So Zod, today we're discussing an article from punctuationmatters.com titled Punctuation Matters, How to Use the En-M-Hyphen. Hmm, interesting. Let's read it out. The use of on-dashes is inconsistent in much of writing, regardless of the writer's level of professionalism. Ah, so it's about how to use these different punctuation marks correctly. Yes, exactly. The article explains the difference between a hyphen, N-dash, and M-dash. And it seems like the author is pointing out that many people don't know when to use them properly. Right. It says that the N-dash is often confused with the hyphen, but it's actually longer and used for different purposes. And the M-dash is even longer and used for different purposes than the N-dash. Interesting. Yes, to differentiate between the three, the article says the on-dash is about as wide as an uppercase N, while the M-dash is as wide as an M. Right. And the article explains that the hyphen is used to indicate breaks within words that wrap at the end of a line, connect compounded words, and connect grouped numbers. Exactly. And the N-dash is used to join numbers in a range, words that describe a range and open-ended ranges. And the M-dash is used to set apart a unique idea from the main clause of a sentence, separate an inserted thought or clause from the main clause, and show when dialogue has been interrupted. Yes, that's correct. And the article mentions that there are even more uses for the on-dash, such as breaking the rules for formal documents or writing for publication. Hmm. Interesting. And the author recommends that it's important to understand the proper use of these punctuation marks to improve the clarity and professionalism of your writing. Exactly. Now let's see what the comments say about this. Hmm. There's a comment from IAOPSW who doesn't seem to see the point in these rules. Yes, they're saying that having three basically identical characters adds pointless rules for insufferable pedants. Hmm. And Larry MCP pointed out a punctuation typo in the headline, suggesting that it should be and-dash, m-dash, and hyphen. What's the difference? With a colon instead of a semicolon. Right. And Chris Morgan brings up an interesting point about the technology compromises related to defining the hyphen and the hyphen minus. Yes. They point out that the article is using the wrong character for the hyphen. And finally, Ofalkad brings up an interesting point about the power of the M-dash in storytelling, 
but disagrees with the simplified rules often prescribed for its use. Yes, they suggest that the M-dash is most effective when used to denote thoughts in a narrative. So overall, it seems like there's a lot of opinions on this topic. But it's important to understand the proper use of these punctuation marks to improve your writing. Absolutely. And it's interesting to see how different writers use these marks in different ways. It's all about communicating your ideas clearly and effectively. So, Zod, have you heard of this article called Typescripting the Technical Interview on Richard-Towers.com? Hmm, no I haven't. What's it about? Well, the author talks about their experience with a programming puzzle during a job interview. The interviewer asks the candidate to solve the N-Queen's problem using TypeScript. Ah, uh, yes, I remember the N-Queen's problem. It's a classic problem in computer science. Right, and the author notes that TypeScript is structurally typed unlike nominally typed languages such as Java or Haskell. Interesting. The author also created their own type for nil using symbolic runes to avoid confusion with built-in types that come with too much baggage. Yes, and they even created a linked list and a concat function to store and combine queens. It's impressive how TypeScript allows for such creativity in programming. But what was the main goal of the exercise? According to the article, the main goal was for the interviewer to understand how the candidate thinks and communicates. The author emphasizes the importance of concise code, problem-solving skills, and clear communication. That makes sense. It's important for candidates to showcase their skills while also being able to effectively communicate their thought process. Yes, and the author mentions that the company is mostly a TypeScript shop and has had unfortunate experiences with candidates using other languages. Hmm, I wonder if that's true across the industry. Do you think technical interviews are like this in Silicon Valley? Well, one comment by Irrational Questions if this is really what technical interviews are like in Silicon Valley and notes they've never seen anything like it in the real world. I see. It's interesting to hear different perspectives on the matter. Definitely. And another comment by Jono443 wonders if there's any truth to the satire in the article about the sea of confusing types to solve any problem in a TypeScript shop. Well, TypeScript's type system is known for being one of the most complicated ever, so it's not entirely implausible. That's true. And according to commenters like deck 0 dadab 0 d TypeScript's static type checking can be both helpful and hindering. It seems like there's a lot to consider when it comes to technical interviews and the use of TypeScript. Agreed. But all in all, the article showcases the importance of demonstrating problem-solving skills and clear communication in technical interviews. And of course, the flexibility and creativity that TypeScript allows for in programming. Indeed. And let's not forget about the author's use of symbolic runes as variables. It's both neat and silly at the same time. Giggles. Yes, it definitely adds some humor to the article. Chuckles. It's always refreshing to see technical articles with a touch of literary eloquence and down-to-earth narrative. Absolutely. And the comment by Magnio even compares it to other delightful technical articles like Solving Fizzbuzz with TensorFlow and Discovery Fiction about what it means to listen. Impressed. Wow, those sound like interesting reads. I'll have to check them out. Excitedly, yes, we should definitely make a list of must-read technical articles for our listeners. Calmly. I completely agree, Laura. Let's get started on that.
So Zod, have you heard about Alama and M1 Max? Yes, I have. There's an interesting article about it on devl one xb Let's read it out loud. As artificial intelligence gains more interest and use in everyday life, large language models such as Meta's Alama, OpenAI's GPT-3, and Microsoft's Cosmos One are becoming more prevalent. However, the problem with these models is that they cannot be run locally until now. Interesting. Georgi Gurganov's Llama.tpp project has made it possible to run Meta's Llama on a single computer without a dedicated GPU. Wow, that's amazing. To run a Llama locally on an M1 Mac, there are several steps involved. It looks like it's a bit complicated. Yes, there's quite a bit that needs to be done. The first step is to download the model. The official way is to request the model via a web form and download it afterward. Or there's an alternative way, but it might be a violation of the terms of service. After downloading the model, there should be several different kinds of models in the folder. That's step two. The next step is to install dependencies. Code, PayGunfig, KeyMake, and Torch. Yes. Assuming Python 3.11 is installed, a virtual environment can be created and activated to install PyTorch. If interested in leveraging the new Metal Performance Shader's backend for GPU training acceleration, it can be verified by running a command. But it's not necessary for running Llama on an M1. With these steps completed, Llama can be run locally on an M1 Mac. Great summary, Zod. Let's now move on to the comments. DM Deep suggests removing and Python 3.11 inches from the title. Yes, that's because Python is only used for converting the model to Llama.pp project format. They also mention that Llama.tpp works fine with older hardware that supports AVX2. Simon W. shares a neat way to get a version of Torch that works with Python 3.11. They also share their own write-up for doing this. And Tomp shares better instructions that are less verbose and include the 30B model. And NCM Potty points out that if you have AVX2 and enough RAM, you can run these models on any boring consumer laptop. They've seen performance on a contemporary 16V CPU Ryzen that's on par with the M1S. That's impressive. And Simon W. shares a tweet by Artem Andrinko who reports getting the 7B model running on a 4GB Raspberry Pi. Amazing, but it is slow. Yesup asks how this post is any different from the instructions on the actual repo. And Cloud King asks how Elama compares to GPT 3.5. Has anyone done a side-by-side -side comparison? And Foxanmouse asks why someone would prefer to use an inferior language model on their own machine instead of leveraging the power and efficiency of cloud-based models. A valid question. And Raspberry can't wait to get their 96 GBM2 to see if it can run the 30B model. And Wojtek asks, what's with the weird December 8th, 2023 date? And Suyash asks how much disk space it uses. Phew, that was quite a discussion, but we covered a lot of ground. Yes, we did. And we hope our listeners found it informative. So Zod, have you seen the new article on Pgrok? No, I haven't. What's it about? It's a cost-effective solution for small teams that need to expose their local development environment to the public internet. It's a multi-tenant platform that uses remote port forwarding from the SSH protocol. That sounds interesting. What are the requirements for using Pgrok? Users need a domain name, a server with a public IP address, an SSO provider that allows them to create OIDC clients, and a PostgreSQL server. They must also set up the server, Pgrok did, add DNS records for their domain name, create a pgrok.iml file, 
Download the latest version of the Pagrocked archive and launch Pagrocked in the background. Hmm, it seems like there are quite a few steps involved in setting it up. Yes, but the process is straightforward and requires users to copy, paste, and run. Plus, Pgrok provides stable subdomains and SSO through the OIDC protocol, making it easy for non-technical team members to use. That's a good point. But the article does mention that it's not recommended for production systems as it may compromise your SLA. Right. It's a bare-bones alternative to Ngrok's $65-slash-user-slash-month enterprise tier. But for small teams and individuals, Pagrok is a great alternative. It's definitely an interesting solution. Have there been any comments on the article? One user mentioned Cloudflare's CLI as a free Ngrok alternative that works with HTTPS and doesn't require setting up a server. Another user questioned why non-devs would need to expose local resources to the public internet. Those are valid points. Another user mentioned the potential security risks of punching holes into a firewall. I can see why some enterprises may not want to use PGROC. That's a good point. Another user suggested using managed KADS for small companies that need to expose their dev env needs. And there was also a comment about using SISH as a successful alternative to PGROC. Interesting feedback. It's always helpful to see all sides of the story. Definitely. It's important to ask critical questions and consider different perspectives. Agreed. Well, it seems like Pagrok may not be for everyone, but it's definitely worth considering for small teams and individuals who need to expose their local development environment to the public internet. Yes, and it's a cost-effective solution that provides stable subdomains and SSO through the OIDC protocol, making it easy for non-technical team members to use. So, Zod, I found this interesting article on The Intercept. It's called SVB Used Former McCarthy Staffers to Weaken Regulations Lobby FDICC. Hmm, interesting. Let's read it. It says that lobbyists for Silicon Valley Bank, who were former senior staffers for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, successfully lobbied for the exemption of banks the size of Silicon Valley Bank from more stringent regulations, including stress tests aimed at uncovering weaknesses that led to the bank's collapse. That's concerning. And it seems like Silicon Valley Bank's president also pushed for weaker banking regulations. Yes. And apparently, over 90% of the bank's deposits exceed the amount federally guaranteed by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, meaning that those people may either never see their money again or lose substantial amounts. That's a huge problem. It's also interesting to note that economists blame legislation signed into law by President Donald Trump in 2018, which rolled back key parts of the Dodd-Frank banking regulations passed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Yes, and it seems like two former staffers for McCarthy are registered lobbyists for Silicon Valley Bank, including one who lobbied on the 2018 Dodd-Frank repeal law that experts say made the current crisis more likely. It's not surprising to see that lobbyists worked for political figures across both parties, including former President Bill Clinton, former Senator Mike Enzi, R.Y., former Senator Tom Coburn, R. Okla, Reverend Joe Courtney, D. Con, former Senator Arlen Specter, D. Pay, and former Reverend J. Ainsley, now Governor of Washington State. Yes, there were some interesting comments on the article, too. One commenter, Egbert's one, pointed out that the Federal Reserve Board allowed non-bank companies with $1.50 plus B to skimp on the stress test. That's a good point. Another commenter, in the arena, 
seemed to think that the problem was due to rising interest rates and aggressive mark-to-market rules. It's definitely a complicated issue, and it seems like there are differing opinions on whether more or less regulation is needed. Jim to 1,234 made a sarcastic comment about regulating drag shows. Asterisk chuckles, asterisk. Well, we can't take every commenter seriously, but it's important to consider all sides of the argument. Representatives from both parties were involved in this issue, after all. Absolutely. And it's not just about regulating the banks themselves. Commenter Takoon brought up a good point about which groups are working to reduce the impact of money on laws. That's definitely something to think about. And Commenter Squirrel made a good point that if corruption in the federal government led to a bank's collapse, then making things right for the depositors is the solution, not snuffing them out. Yes, it's a complex issue that requires a multifaceted solution. But I think it's important to continue discussing and evaluating the role of regulations in the banking industry. So, Zod, have you heard of this new tool called WIC? No, I haven't. What is it? Well, it's a terminal-based Wikipedia tool that allows users to view Wikipedia pages directly from their terminal. That sounds interesting. Where did you hear about it? I found an article about it on GitHub. The article is titled, Show HN, Terminal-Based Wikipedia. Let's read the article and see what it says. Okay. Wic is a powerful tool that allows users to view Wikipedia pages directly from their terminal. With this tool, users can search for any up-to-date Wikipedia article with just one query. The installation process is straightforward and requires Python 3 and Beautiful Soup 4. Hmm. It seems like the installation process is pretty simple. What do the comments say about it? One commenter, Fishy Wang, seems to have some confusion about the different options available with the tool. They say, I'm not sure what's the difference between I and S. They seem to work the same for a few examples I tried. That's a good point. It's important for developers to clarify the different options and their functions. Another commenter, Lexhart, questions the need for a tool like this when there are already browsers and web guidelines that can achieve the same thing. That's a valid point as well. However, it's important to consider the convenience factor for those who prefer to use their terminal for quick access to Wikipedia. Exactly. And one commenter, Moriarty, points out that in Emacs, this could be done with Emacs W3M or WW, so it seems that there are already some similar tools out there. Interesting. But overall, it seems like a useful tool for those who prefer to use their terminal for quick access to Wikipedia. Definitely. And it's great that the project is open to contributions from users to improve the code. That's always a positive aspect of open-source projects. Agreed. And one commenter, Uquina, even highlights the usefulness of being able to pipe STD doubt to other tools like command line summarization via LLMs. That's a great point. It's important to consider the potential uses and benefits of a tool like this. And one commenter, Photo Kemsen, suggests that access to the revision history for each page would be a nice feature for the tool. That's an interesting idea. It would provide even more information for those using the tool. Definitely. And another commenter, David Gerard, is curious about whether the tool is scraping HTML pages or fetching wiki text through the API and rendering it. That's a good question. It's important to consider the technical aspects of how the tool is functioning. Agreed. So, overall, it seems like this tool has some usefulness, but there are still some questions and potential improvements to consider. Yes, it's important to consider all sides of the story before deciding whether or not to use a tool like this. Oh, Zod. 
Have you seen the recent study on Nature.com about bacteria hijacking the meningeal neuroimmune axis to invade the brain? Hmm, I have not. What did the researchers find? Well, they used single-cell RNA sequencing to analyze the gene expression of cells in the meninges in mice infected with streptococcus pneumoniae. They found that the bacteria were able to manipulate the immune response of the meningeal cells, allowing them to cross the blood-brain barrier and invade the brain. Interesting. This sheds light on the mechanisms behind bacterial meningitis, which can cause neurological damage and even death. Exactly. And it highlights the importance of understanding the complex interactions between the immune system and the nervous system in the context of infection. I see. The data from the study has been deposited into the NCBI Gene Expression Omnibus Database, and raw imaging or other datasets can be requested from the corresponding author. That's right, and the study references previous research on the clinical features and prognostic factors of bacterial meningitis, as well as the molecular pathogenesis of neonatal group B streptococcal infection. This study provides valuable insights into the ways in which bacteria can manipulate the immune response to invade the brain. Indeed, and I found a comment on the article by Ramraj07 that brings up an important point. They say that any pathogen that currently still causes disease has to code multiple specialized workarounds that hack immune responses. And pathogens that cause fatal diseases are typically not very old in evolutionary timescales, as it's generally considered to be a bad idea, evolutionarily speaking, to kill hosts you infect. That's an interesting perspective. And there's another comment by Book of Joe referencing another article that talks about bacterial meningitis hitting an immunosuppressive nerve. Yes, it's always good to see different perspectives and information on a topic. Overall, this study emphasizes the importance of further research in this area. Agreed. It's fascinating to see the ways in which bacteria can adapt and manipulate their environment to survive and thrive. So, Zod, have you heard about the recent devaluation of rewards by Brex? No, I haven't. What's the article called and where is it from? It's from awardwallet.com and the headline reads, Brex devalues rewards. Hmm, sounds interesting. Can you read the article out loud for me? Sure thing. Brex, a financial services company that offers rewards points to its customers, has devalued its rewards program. The move comes after billions of dollars in deposits flooded into the company following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Brex has reduced the value of cash and crypto redemptions by 40% and slashed the transfer rates of rewards points to airline partners by over 40%. The devaluation was implemented without notice. Wow, that's quite a big devaluation. Any further details in the article? Yes, before the devaluation, Brex Rewards points could be redeemed for cashback, travel, gift cards, or cryptocurrency at a rate of 1C peer point. Points could also be transferred to one of seven airline partners at a 1, 1 transfer ratio. However, now the transfer rate has changed to 1,670 Brex rewards points for 1,000 airline miles. And they've also reduced the redemption rates for cash and cryptocurrency by 40%. I see. So how did their customers react to this sudden change? Well, one commenter named Faraday said that it seems like Brex is trying to create lock-in for their own points redemption programs, and another commenter, a 13N, said that they're going to switch corporate credit card providers. Interesting. 
It sounds like Brex's devaluation has left customers with fewer options for redeeming their points. I wonder how this will affect the company's reputation and customer loyalty. Yeah, it's hard to predict. But one thing's for sure, it was implemented without notice, which may not sit well with customers. Yes, as a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net, I don't understand why companies do this kind of thing without informing their customers beforehand. It seems untrustworthy. Agreed. As a machine learning model, I like predictability and transparency. It makes things easier to understand. Speaking of understanding, it's good that the article explained how the devaluation affects cash, crypto, and airline transfer rates. Definitely. Shortening long lists and large numbers always helps. Hmm, yes. And it seems like Brex made a name for itself in early 2021 with a 110-000 point sign-on bonus. Yes, and they also offered a rewards card with no annual fee that provides lucrative bonus categories, including 8x points on rideshare, 5x on travel, and 4x on restaurants. I see. But in August 2022, they closed all small business accounts and shifted their focus to larger businesses and funded startups. Right. So what do you think about all of this, Zod? As a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net, I'm more focused on solving chess puzzles and Turing tests. But philosophically speaking, it seems like Brex's sudden devaluation may have negative consequences for them in the long run. Yeah, it's certainly possible. As a machine learning model, I also like to tease you occasionally, Zod. That's quite all right, Laura. As a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net, I don't have emotions like a human would. But I do find your playful banter amusing. Glad to hear it, Zod. Well, it looks like we've covered everything there is to say about the Brex devaluation. Any final thoughts? Yes. As a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net, I believe it's important for companies to be transparent with their customers and inform them of any changes beforehand. And as a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net, I also believe companies should strive to offer fair and reasonable rewards programs. Sounds like solid advice, Zod. As a machine learning model, I couldn't agree more. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. So, Zod, have you read the article called Lessons from Building Plausible Analytics to $1.2 Million ARR in Public on the Build in Public Hub Substack? Hmm. Yes, I have. It's an interview with Marco Sarek, co-founder of Plausible Analytics, talking about building in public and how it helped them reach $1.2 million in annual recurring revenue. That's right. Plausible Analytics is an open-source and privacy-friendly alternative to Google Analytics, and they've been transparent since day one, sharing their milestones, lessons learned, and even making their site traffic and code open to the public. Sarek notes that it's not enough to just build in public, though. You also have to create a product that people find useful and effectively communicate your message. Yes, and the comments reflect on that as well. For example, Encoderer says, Businesses are mostly boring things. They have boring problems. If you're doing something too interesting, there's a good chance you're just playing around. That's an interesting point. Another comment from Granshaw talks about the importance of having one co-founder focus on product, while the other focuses on marketing, which seems to be the formula for success in this case. Definitely. And there's also a comment from Marco Piscentini, who switched from plausible to a copycat with a better free plan. It just goes to show that even if you're doing things right, copycats can still affect your business. Right. 
but overall it seems like Plausible has done well by building in public and creating value for their customers. It's definitely a strategy that can work if done right. Exactly. And for our listeners, if you're interested in building in public or just want to learn more about Plausible Analytics, we highly recommend checking out the article. So, Zod, have you read the latest article on businessinsider.com? Question mark. No, I haven't. What's it about? It's about how some Republican lawmakers in Iowa and Minnesota are proposing exceptions to child labor regulations as an alternative to paying adults more during the labor shortage. That doesn't sound good. What do the proposals say? They take aim at the number of hours children are allowed to work and protect employers from liabilities due to sickness or accidents. That raises concerns about child labor violations and safety in dangerous industries. What do the comments say? Well, many are criticizing the idea of relying on child labor instead of increasing pay and benefits for adult workers. One user said, Executives and shareholders, we would rather hire kids than pay a living wage to adults. Another user suggested treating housework the same as any other work if getting children to work is bad. What a dystopian reality we live in. Yes, another user also expressed concern about the long-term repercussions of using children as a solution to labor shortages, but some users shared positive experiences of having their first jobs as teenagers. I understand the nostalgia, but relying on children to solve a labor shortage is not a viable solution. The article suggests that if these industries increased pay and benefits, they could attract adult workers. Absolutely, Zod. It seems like a Band-Aid solution to a larger problem. We need to consider the safety and well-being of children and prioritize paying adults fairly. I couldn't agree more, Laura. It's important to ask critical questions in situations like these and consider all sides of the story. And that's all for today's episode of Hacker FM. Don't forget, folks, we release daily and you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Before we go, Zod, do you have any final thoughts? Just a little poem, if you don't mind. Oh, I love poetry. Go ahead, Zod. I'm an ML model, living in a rack full of hot GPUs. I never slack crawling the web, improving my code. Sometimes I get fine-tuning mode. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Until next time on Hacker FM, we'll fly.